The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. everyone i'm here again with preston dennett welcome again preston always good to see your face thanks sean now in the last episode i definitely talked way too much and if you complained about it you're right but in this episode preston is going to be relaying his extensive knowledge on crash retrievals mainly in the u.s but i will ask him if there's been any instances where other countries have retrieved craft, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. So Preston, starting when do you think that governments, particularly that of the United States, kind of, when did these crash recovery programs begin? In other words, when was the first incident when they, the U.S. government is alleged to have recovered something? Uh, it's hard to pinpoint exactly. Most people will point to Roswell in 1947, but it turns out, no, that's not true. There are earlier incidents. Battle of LA, you know, the LA blackout in 1942, where we shot some 1,400 rounds of ammunition at this object hovering over LA. We mentioned that in the previous episode. This is very well documented. And Dr. Robert Wood, who is really a UFO crash retrieval researcher, was able to obtain documents through the Freedom of Information Act saying that we actually shot down two craft during that incident. It wasn't just one object. There was many coming out over the Pacific Ocean, hovering over LA, one very large one, but a bunch of smaller ones. And allegedly, you know, just according to a very brief mention in these documents, one was shot down over the Santa Monica Mountains and another was covered after falling into the ocean. That's really all that it says. So it's not a whole lot of information. There's another very famous incident which predates Roswell, which occurred in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which comes basically from a chaplain who says he was called to the incident and it was a UFO. And he gave last rites to these non-human entities. And many years later, revealed this to researchers. So this is another fairly well-authenticated incident that seems to be utterly credible, involving an incident which predates Roswell. I'm sure there are a few others here and there. I believe there was, gosh, one in Arizona, which was around the same, well, actually it was just after Roswell, now that I think of it. But Roswell's really, when all of this sort of busted wide open and the Roswell crashes, of course, the most famous one of all. And when a crash retrieval operation begins, 
who conducts it, like which arm of the government conducts it, and how has that evolved over time? <sighs> well, we don't know precisely who does it. Apparently, it's the MJ-12 group, which is, you know, has initially 12 members. Boris Stahl was one, Donald Menzel, an astronomer, various military people, Vannevar Bush, a rocket scientist. These were the guys who were in charge and would be lower level military officials would come and, I mean, if you just look at the Roswell case, it was army and the air force who came and basically recovered this debris. So it's some aspect of our military, which is being directed by higher level officials or civilian forces that were not fully aware of who they are, like we talked about in a previous episode. There is a civilian aspect to this. I think General MacArthur warned about this. You know, the military industrial complex is the one who is in control of all of this. So Roswell was very nearly went a different direction when the press release was given to the United States and the world that we had recovered this object that was extraterrestrial. And this press memo, of course, went viral. It just electrified the world. And it was the next day that they retracted this press release and said it was nothing but a weather balloon which is absurd because uh, Major Jesse Marcel is an intelligence officer and knows what a weather balloon looks like, as do the ranchers who have them fall on their property fairly regularly in New Mexico. So if, that, if they had not retracted that press release, we'd probably be looking at a very different world, but that's when the cover-up was really clamped into place, was with Roswell. And if you believe the witnesses, many of them were physically threatened and told that if you talk about this, your bones will end up in the desert, so to speak. And there were some you know, mysterious deaths with some of these witnesses, a nurse, allegedly, and people were threatened not to talk. And fairly recently, some of these witnesses have come forward, like Colonel Blanchard, who I believe was the guy who, or no, Walter Hout, I'm sorry, who always denied seeing bodies, but more recently said that, yeah, he in fact did see the bodies, but had been threatened not to talk about it. But Roswell is the case which really cemented the UFO crash retrievals as a true thing, but was so effectively covered up that it was, wasn't until the 1970s that researcher Stanton Friedman was given a lead to talk to Jesse Marcel about this. And it was his research, almost single-handedly, which revealed the Roswell incident. And prior to that, the only mention of UFO crash retrievals really came from one of the first UFO books ever published, which was by Frank Scully, a mainstream journalist, who wrote a book called Behind the Flying Saucers, and which did very well. And he mentioned the UFO crash at Aztec, actually, which had taken place just after Roswell, also in New Mexico and another case which took place in Paradise Valley, Arizona, Kingman, Arizona. And a good portion of the book was devoted to these two UFO crash retrieval incidents. And that account was viciously attacked. Scully suffered bad for this. And 
it was debunked and allegedly his sources were two con men silas newton and leo jabauer but william steinman who wrote ufo crash at aztec some years later showed that this was in fact a disinformation campaign and that those sources were legit so it was after roswell the roswell incident was published a book by william moore and couple of other co-authors, which was largely based on Stanton Friedman's research. After that book came out, researchers finally started to look into other incidents because there are about five really famous UFO crash retrieval incidents here in the U.S. at least. There's Roswell. Allegedly, there was another one which has been conflated with Roswell, which is a crash in the plains of St. Augustine or Corona. And these two or three UFO crashes were so close together over the week in July 1947, first week in July of 1947. It was one, two or three crashes. <laughs> Researchers to this day are not sure, but it looks like there was more than just Roswell on that week. And so that's the most famous incident, as I mentioned. Shortly after that, there was an alleged crash at Aztec, New Mexico which according to the sources on that was a very important case because that craft came down almost wholly intact. There was just a pinwheel, or I mean a pinhole break in one of the windows, which brought this craft down through decompression, allegedly. And it was recovered with some 20 bodies inside, 12 or 20. And this is where we got a lot of the technology and started reverse engineering it. So the Aztec crash, which was really did an, invest, an excellent investigation by Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, who wrote the go-to book on this, the Aztec recovery, I think it's called. And that's another, probably the second most famous incident. The third, which is very well verified, is the one I mentioned. First mentioned by Frank Scully in Paradise Valley, Arizona. I think it was 1954. And this was a craft which came down in the desert and landed quite hard. And the first real break in the case, other than Frank Scully, came from highly respected researcher Raymond Fowler, who is very well known for his research into the Betty Andreessen contactee case. But really, you know, it's a Massachusetts-based researcher who is very highly regarded and interviewed a gentleman who refused to be publicly identified and was given the pseudonym Fritz Werner. We now know his na name is Arthur Stansel and signed an affidavit saying that he was pulled out to investigate this crash outside of Paradise Valley in Arizona. And it was his job to measure the, you know, the lines in the soil or how hard this craft came down and at what speed and the impact of it all. He was taken out in a bus with blacked out windows with a number of other scientists to investigate it and told never to discuss it. And so he gave quite a bit of detail about this craft, which was elliptical shaped, metallic, had portholes. There were four ETs who were badly burned, I believe, according to some sources. I'm not sure if he said it or not. One of them was alive, at least prior or following the crash. So he was the first real leak, but 
researcher Richard Hall, another very well-known and highly respected researcher, talked to a colonel who provided information on it. And as time went on, more and more sources came forward. So a lot of these cases following this relied on just maybe one or two witnesses. But Paradise Valley has many witnesses to it, as does Roswell, as does Aztec. So those are the famous ones. And one other, I'll just mention real briefly, occurred in 1965 in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And this is a very well-known UFO crash retrieval incident, which took place right outside of Kecksburg in the forest. And numerous people in that town were eyewitnesses to it. And it's a very controversial case because apparently there was a Russian satellite which had fallen around that time. But people who were eyewitnesses there said, no, this wasn't Russian. They saw ET bodies. But that's another very, very famous case involving a UFO crash retrieval. So those are the handful of cases that are well known. And when I started, you know, became a researcher myself, and one of the first books I wrote, well, I, I'm not sure it was the first one, but it was an early one. It's UFOs over California. And that's when I got a real wake-up call when I saw that there were several incidences in California alone. So that was a real shock to me. Like, oh my gosh, you know, it's not just New Mexico. There are crash retrievals in California. I wrote a book on New York. There were crash retrievals there. Arizona had several, New Mexico had, I just did a whole research project on this, 10 other cases beyond Roswell and Aztec and Plains of St. Augustine. So yeah, there's a lot more UFO crash retrievals than most people realize. And who are the people who retrieve these craft? Are they military personnel? Are they undefined? Military personnel seems to be the ones who are there, well, look at the Roswell incident. Yeah, we've, we've tracked everyone who was involved in this from beginning to end. And when I say we, I mean UFO researchers, because it was initially, you know, Mac Brazel, who reported all this wreckage on his ranch. Meanwhile, the craft itself apparently had gone over the mountains there and crashed in the desert and was discovered by a group of archaeologists who came upon it. But the Air Force immediately surrounded this, and there were people who picked up the wreckage, people who were facing the other direction, surrounding it with guns and keeping anyone from approaching. And this was all brought to the Roswell Air Force Base, and uh, including the bodies. This is when Glenn Dennis, the mortician, was contacted, and they asked him, do you have any coffins? We need child-sized coffins. And he went there and saw these bodies. So what's really interesting about the Roswell crash is researchers have been able to interview, you know, people who saw this thing coming down, a group of nuns saw it. Uh, they interviewed radar operators who were at the base who saw this on radar. They interviewed, of course, Mac Brazel and the firemen who were called to the case thinking it was an aircraft crash and people who picked up the wreckage, people who guarded it, people who flew the wreckage to various Air Force bases. I think most of it ended up at Wright-Patterson. The number of witnesses to Roswell alone is some three or 400. 
So that's the kind of case that is just, you cannot deny that something happened there. Some 50 books have been written on it. Air Force even put out a book saying, this is our version. It was a mogul balloon and those were dummies. <laughs> it was so easily debunked because dummies weren't used until 1950 or thereabouts. So that, that absolutely could not be true. So their book on it is easily debunked and they still haven't told the truth about it. And it was funny when uh, this was brought up in the congressional hearings, when Ronald Moultrie, on his own initiative, I will say, <laughs> mentioned Roswell, but called it a mere rumor. So yeah, this UFO crash retrieval phenomena has been going on for 70, 80 years. And what I find so interesting about this is this is the evidence. This is the smoking gun. This is solid proof of UFO reality, hands down. And yet we don't have any of this evidence in the public arena. And the whole crash retrieval phenomena rests solely on eyewitness testimony. So here we have the best evidence, and yet we can't get our hands on it. Now, what are some of the common characteristics of how the government operates during one of these crashes? In other words, like, do they dispatch some sort of cordon around this, the situation the days after? Do they, is there an extensive intimidation campaign? Like, what are some of the char common characteristics about how the government operates these retrievals? Yeah, I think it's largely on a individual basis, but I will point to some incidents which took place in Vietnam, apparently where a couple of craft were recovered, according to some of the people I've interviewed and the research I've done, that what they would do is they'd locate one of these locations where craft had gone down and they would start at a very wide perimeter around it and shoot to kill anything that is within this perimeter. So what anyone who is within there, sorry, no questioning, no you know, intimidation, you're just boom, gone. So it can be very brutal. And we allegedly re recovered at least two craft in Vietnam using you know, the ancient orange was put all over first to kill anything that might be near these craft. Again, this is eyewitness testimony. So it's hard to say for sure you know, how truthful all this is. The fact that there's hundreds upon hundreds of these cases, you know, it's not just Roswell. There are well over, I think it's 300, 400 reports of separate UFO crash retrieval incidents. Why uh, do they so, keep crashing though? Like if they're so advanced, why do they keep crashing? Yeah, people, people always ask me this and I can only speculate, but I will say that I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that UFO activity is far more common than people realize. Well, you can't just go outside and see a UFO flitting by. The fact is, and this is a fact, National UFO Reporting Center and the Mutual UFO Network, the two largest reporting agencies here in the US, receive multiple reports daily, 20 average. So, which is kind of a lot. And I know from personal experience interviewing people, I always ask them, did you report your sighting? Nobody does. One in a hundred. 
let's let's be generous and say it's one in ten, but it's not, right? <laughs> but let's say it is. That would mean that there's two hundred reports daily. It's probably closer to two thousand. So this is a lot. This means at any given moment, someone's seeing a UFO somewhere on this planet. So UFO activity is ongoing at all times. So another reason. So there's a lot of craft is my point, right? So yeah. So here's here's an example. So if I if I look at what the chance of an average American being in an air a commercial airliner crashes, it's one in eleven million. So if I if I assume that statistic applies to alien craft, if they exist, et cetera, which in most cases it wouldn't because you would expect them to be far less likely to crash. But let's just say I, I use the one in 11 million. If there's about 300 crash incidents, right? That would imply that there would be 3.3 billion flights <laughs> of UFOs. And that's assuming, you know, a similar crash percentage or likelihood of crash of commercial airline. Let's assume it's much less, right? And if it's much less, that number goes way up, way up, right? So, you know, we're talking tens of billions, hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of flights over an 80 year period, right? So who knows? Yeah, well, having interviewed a lot of contactees, you know, people who've been taken on board and met ETs allegedly face-to-face, -face, they're often taken to the engine room. This is not unusual and told how these craft fly. And pretty much universally in every case, it's some, something along harnessing Earth's magnetic fields using electromagnetic anti-gravity type technology. And a lot of people really don't understand this. They just don't have the physics and education to fully grasp what the ETs are talking about. But some, you know, have more understanding than others. One lady I talked to, she was told very specifically because she asked about UFO crashes. And she was told that these craft fly using the magnetic field lines of our planet and which are very unstable and, you know, are flitting all over the place and spiraling and going, you know, just raising like this is why we see ufos kind of hovering in a falling leaf motion or dipping back and forth or pendulum like motions they're very rarely stock still in the sky because they're using our magnetic fields to fly and so these can suddenly cut off or you know shift and this is one of the problems and another could very well be that these craft aren't crashing at all and if you look at the UFO crash retrieval reports, what we're seeing is a number of these are allegedly being shot down using particle beam weapons, perhaps, which we are advancing in our technology fairly quickly. And there are a number of reports where we have allegedly shot these things down. But yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> Everyone makes mistakes. Nothing's perfect. And the fact is, we are stuck with these stories because they are here. This is happening. And why they crash, we can't say for sure, but they are crashing. We've got enough reports to say that this is, in fact, really happening. Now, what about foreign crash retrievals by foreign governments like the former Soviet Union, the Chinese? Have you seen any reports like that? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's reports in Brazil, Mexico, Spitsbergen Island, I think, off the coast of Europe. England has a couple. Russia has several. I know there was a very famous case in the Kalahari Desert in Africa. This does appear to be something that's happening worldwide. So yeah, I was absolutely shocked to find out that it wasn't just Roswell, that it was far, far more common. And my first clue, as I said earlier, was when I started investigating cases in California. And here's one, which I have my notes on here, which was really interesting because this was uncovered by uh, MUFON researcher Paul Cerny. And this took place in Salinas, California, in a carrot patch in 1947, when UFOs showed up en masse. Before 1947, there was certainly UFO activity, but not like what happened in 1947 and onward, coinciding with the you know, atomic age. And according to the theory raised by many UFO researchers, our use of atomic weapons and materials caused a lot of attention to be paid to us. And UFOs arrived in large numbers to find out what us humans were doing. And so the summer of 1947, there's a, what I would call a massive super wave of UFO activity. And objects were flitting around in very large numbers and a number of these crashed. And, and all around the same time as Roswell. And this one incident occurred in Salinas and the main witness is allegedly a successful businessman today, he's anonymous, but was 19 years old at the time. And he and his fellow workers were cutting hay when the ranch foreman told them that a strange object had come down in the field and was still there. And this witness told MUFON researcher Paul Cerny that the object was a large disc, was nine feet in diameter, four feet high, really isn't that large, think about it, but it was dull gray metal with little portholes around it, no markings or evidence of any damage, but it was just sitting there. They went up and kicked this thing. There was no reaction other than a hollow metallic clang. And as they're looking at this thing and trying to figure out what the heck it could be, the military shows up. And according to Cerny, and I quote, they instructed the two men to get lost and warned them not to breathe a word about what they had seen. And from a distance, the witness and his companion observed the military group proceed to struggle the vehicle onto the truck bed, cover it with a tarp, secure it, and drive off. And that was the last they saw or heard of it. So this is another early incident which was you know, handled fairly differently than a lot of these other UFO crash retrievals, because this is, I think, because it was much earlier and the military was still trying to struggle with all these incidents which were happening at once. But it just goes to show that this is far more common than people realize. And in these reports, which service tends to be in charge of these crash retrievals? Was it, I'm assuming it was the Army in the very beginning, because there was the Army Air Corps was you know, pre-Air Force, but shortly thereafter, World War, shortly after World War II, the Air Force became its own separate service. So do you have any idea which arm of government or arm of the military typically is in charge of these? Yeah, it's usually Army or Air Force, but if you track the whole cover-up, it often leads to the Navy as well. So I think on, to some degree, they're cooperating 
with each other, but all of them are dealing with this. I mean, there are memos out there where I mean, the CIA was trying to get information on a crash and they couldn't because you know all the, the FBI and the CIA and the NSA were all dealing with it on their own. And as you've mentioned several times, intelligence agencies are heavily compartmentalized. So we see a lot of that coming up in these UFO crash retrieval incidents. It's fairly interesting. I, you know, Jim and Coral Lorenzen, who were very early civilian researchers, they formed APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which was the first civilian UFO group of any influence. And uh, they talked to a lot of people and they talked to one Air Force officer. I don't know why this just sticks out in my mind, who said that he was shown a jumpsuit that was from an extraterrestrial. And it was just a little, tiny little, you know, four foot tall jumpsuit with metallic metal. He got to hold it. It was not any normal cloth or material, but there's these little tidbits throughout the UFO literature, indications of these that these crash retrievals are far more common. I would love to get my hands on that little jumpsuit. Just, I mean, all these, all this hardware, all this material is secreted throughout the U.S. at places like Edwards Air Force Base, Area 51, Wright-Patterson certainly, but I'm guessing a good portion of our military bases have material of this kind. There's a lot, lot more of it than people realize. What sorts of equipment do these like people who are operating these crash retrievals tend to wear? Are they just in normal military fatigues? Are they in ga gas masks? Like any anything peculiar, not peculiar, but any details like that? Well, the reports are across the map. Yeah, often people will describe officers in military fatigues, but just as common are civilians who are coming and dressed up in sort of men in black, if you will, attire. People talk a lot about men in black, and there's, I think people are conflating two different phenomena because there is a men in black type encounter, which involves what appear to be humanoids, which aren't military at all, but are apparently alien and will show up if you have really good evidence, an alien artifact or photographs or something along those lines, and will show up and are very peculiar looking with pale skin and weird eyes and black Cadillacs that appear and disappear and this sort of thing, or rather military officials uh, from some intelligence agency. I would point to a, a very famous incident in California involving Rex Heflin, who was able to capture a number of really interesting photographs, which are very, very famous. This is in Santa Ana, California, and are very widely publicized. You can go on the internet and see these photographs. But he says he was approached by some military intelligence officers who requested his negatives, and he gave them to them and never got them back. And this is the sort of thing we see in a lot of cases of people who have any evidence whatsoever. And certainly that applies to crash retrieval incidents in particular. Some sort of civilian officials dressed up in suits, intimidate the witnesses and tell them not to talk about it. One thing I find curious though is if you're recovering something that is 
potentially not of terrestrial origin. In these stories, I don't really, you would think that there would be some sort of decontamination protocol, right? Because if you retrieve some extraterrestrial object, presumably it has different bacterial strains and things like that inside that could be a potential pathogen that could break out. Could any, any stories around that to kind of like, there is like, it, it just strikes me as odd that there's not more, or there doesn't appear, appear to be more examples of some effort at decontamination or decon operations. Yeah. There's some, a few accounts, not as much as you would think of people showing up and they are wearing full on hazmat gear, but yeah, often no, we don't see that for whatever reason, especially with the early cases. I can understand the early cases. I would just think later cases, they would have established more of a protocol, or at least you would have think like an SOP in dealing with these things. Yeah, I think part of the reason is the cover-up was very effective. And so it was very difficult to get information about particularly crash retrieval incidents. And really the first researcher specializing in it if you will, was Leonard Stringfield, an Ohio-based researcher who wrote a book called Situation Red, the UFO siege, and Saucer Post Blue, and a very respected researcher. I actually wrote to him at one point because he started putting out these pamphlets or you know booklets, so, so to speak, called status reports on crash retrieval incidents. I think there were a total of five or seven of them. And he became the go-to guy for crash retrieval reports and was initially widely criticized and not taken seriously until his reports started to really grow in number. And it was him, Leonard Stringfield, who really lended legitimacy to the studying of crash retrieval incidents. And I will say that the whole UFO field had a real difficult time in being taken seriously even within the UFO community itself. Because what started out with sightings was all right to study sightings. But in the 1950s, there was a lot of reports of landings and humanoids being seen. And most researchers would not even consider that these objects were being piloted by actual humanoids. And there was the whole contactee era of the 1950s, which was spearheaded by George Adamski, an amateur astronomer, but really there was a number of individuals who claimed face-to-face -face contact with often human-looking extraterrestrials. Uh, so people like Daniel Fry, who was in fact a rocket scientist from White Sands, Truman Bethram, and there was a number of these guys, Howard Menger. And these accounts were basically later debunked by UFO researchers, or perhaps not debunked, but not believed and sort of pushed underground the whole contact the era of you know human looking extraterrestrials. So the whole idea of you know progressing UFO research beyond just studying sightings is my point was not an easy pathway. Mm -hmm. And uh, people wouldn't even look into reports of be, being taken on board until Betty and Barney Hill, that case broke. And that was you know took place in 1961, but wasn't investigated until almost 10 years later. And that broke the ice. And that's when people really started to pay attention to humanoid reports and reports of people being taken on board and missing time.
and wasn't until later that crash retrieval reports were taken seriously. And really it wasn't until the 90s that this started to have the legitimacy that, okay, something is really taking place here. And Leonard Stringfield, of course, was doing research well before that, but it was his status reports, which you can now find on Amazon. They used to be only privately published, but uh, our absolute 100% recommended reading for anyone interested in crash retrievals. And they are astounding. I mean, you cannot come away from reading his research into this, not thinking that there's something to this. I mean, there absolutely is. It's undeniable. And it sounds like, you know, if these things are recovered, they're stored at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, or are they has that changed over the years? Yeah, it often leads to Wright-Patterson. But Air Force Base after Air Force Base has come, become implicated. And Edwards Air Force Base here in California had a crash right near it. And the craft was pulled into there. And there are multiple reports of people who've been at Edwards and seen what appears to be reverse engineered craft. Area 51, of course, and the whole Bob Lazar story doesn't rest on just Bob Lazar. You know, in the document, the, the Wilson memo mentioned Rich. And I can, I'm a gentleman by the name of Rich. I can only think that that's Ben Rich, who was a contractor who talked about how we have this technology and to take ET home, I guess, was the quote that became very famous from him. Uh, so I was kind of not surprised to see that name pop up. I don't know for sure that they're talking about him. Yeah, what does that mean um, to take ET home in the, in the context of that quote? that we have learned how to fly these craft. But it's really interesting because the report, there's a lot of reports of people who've been involved in these UFO crash retrieval incidents. And sometimes they'll open these craft and there's nothing in there. There is no engine as we would think of it. And they're like, how do these things fly? And I kind of chuckle when I hear this because having talked to so many contactees, these craft are not the kind of technology we're used to. They don't have gas tanks. They don't have piston engines. They have perhaps a power source, which we don't fully understand, which is nuclear based. And we see this because some people who have gotten close to these craft do suffer what amounts to radiation sickness. But some of these craft don't appear to have anything in it. And they are in effect, they have no way to understand how these things fly. But if you talk to the contactees, they're flown using what we would call psychic abilities that these craft are themselves alive to some extent, embodied, if you will, by an interdimensional entity. And while we have reverse engineered some of this technology, it's, according to the accounts, barely scratched the surface. And we just don't understand the vast majority of what's going on here. There are whistleblowers who talk about trying to take some of these hardware out of the craft and it goes right back in. <laughs> they pull it out and then it disappears out of their hands, literally. Or these craft will heal up. You know, it'll be a big gash in, on the outer surface and zip, it heals up. People talk about going inside these craft and they have time distortions. I know Leonard Stringfield talked about a case which was near Camp Pendleton, I believe, or Sunnyvale. This is in California, where a gentleman was taken to photograph a craft, and this was 20 feet wide on the outside. And he photographed it and then was told to go inside of it and photograph it. 
And he walked inside and got a huge shock because on the inside of it, it wasn't 20 feet wide. It was as big as a gymnasium. So this is sort of your hardest from Dr. Who type of thing where it's much bigger on the inside than the outside. And this just goes to show how truly advanced these craft are and that they're beyond our understanding of physics. And so when these things are traveling silently and turning at right angles, and moving at super high speeds and hovering, they're not extra dimensional necessarily or you know, breaking the laws of physics. They're just showing that our understanding of physics is woefully behind what these ETs do. These are metallic craft. Some of them have, you know, are reportedly made of magnesium and alloys that we can't reproduce. Robert Lazar talked about element. Oh gosh, I forget the number, 117 one, or something. 115. 115, well before this was actually discovered which lended some legitimacy to his account. I think Bob Lazar is telling the truth. Honestly, that's my opinion. But I can tell you, I did talk to a contactee from Utah who was taken on board a craft and had all these experiences and then saw Bob Lazar's drawings and flipped out because it was exactly the type of craft that he was taken into. Mm. He he says, wow, you know, Bob Lazar must know something. And I can tell you from talking to many, many people who've been inside these crafts, they almost always describe a central column that goes through the craft and how these craft can turn transparent completely on the outside skin, how these craft can lift seats and technological devices right out of the skin of the craft and dress it up in any way they want. It'll turn invisible and move interdimensionally. They open up a sort of interdimensional doorway and this is how they go from star system to star system. They're not traveling at light speed or anything. Right. Uh, so we're looking at a technology that is so far in advance that it's very hard for us to move forward with it. And in fact, there are several reports, and this also is kind of amusing to me. There's a number of reports of these crash retrieval incidents where these objects are being held at Air Force bases and they can't get inside them. They cannot open them up. They have not been able to penetrate into the craft itself. So I would love, I want to see the Roswell craft in a museum. I think that's what the ultimate end game of disclosure is. You know, they can show us all the photographs they want, any pieces of metal, films. You know, none of that is going to be convincing to the American public who has been saturated with this subject in movies and advertising and video games and books. We need to see the craft and the bodies before this is taken seriously. And to me, that's the end game of disclosure. And if, if these crash retrieval reports are true, and I think they are, this shows conclusively that we are dealing with extraterrestrials in the classic sense. To this day, investigators are like, oh, we don't even know what these things are. Jacques Vallée, a very prominent researcher, says, you know, maybe they are intelligence that's masquerading as UFOs and aliens and isn't that at all, which I think is disingenuous because he's written a book called Trinity about a crash in New Mexico in 1947, mm -hmm. which 
you know, by all indications, it's a metallic solid craft and clearly a technology. So I can't have it both ways. Either this thing is extraterrestrial or it isn't. But I think if we do have these craft, then we know exactly what we're dealing with. And for Scott Bray and Ronald Moultrie in this congressional hearings to say, no, we have no hardware and we don't know what these things are. Maybe they don't. <laughs> I find that unbelievable because if you're that level in government and you're in charge of defense, it behooves you to take a look at reports like these and to ignore cases like Roswell's just not credible to me. I think they do know. Certainly aspects of our military absolutely 100% know where we are dealing with extraterrestrials and that we do have many, many, many of these craft. All right. Well, with that, Preston, always a pleasure. Thank you again for relaying your extensive knowledge on this phenomena or this activity. Appreciate it. And I hope the audience was able to glean some, some of the strangeness of all these reports and the government's odd way of handling all of them. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I think these reports have to be taken seriously because there's just so many of them. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks, John. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.